doors, bolt your windows, and turn off the lights. Welcome to Michael Myers Minute, where we delve into the 1978 horror classic Halloween one minute at a time. I'm your host, Robert Black. Minute four begins with us looking into the living room of the Myers house. Danny and Judy are on the couch. There's crooked picture frames hanging over the couch, presumably with photos of the Myers family. Maybe a picture of baby Cynthia, maybe a picture of Grandma and Grandpa Nordstrom. Judy speaks. Michael's around someplace. The first line is important. Note the usual complaint about this opening sequence. Michael was too tall, the camera too high, but couple this deliberately wrong perspective with some later scenes. Minute 15, Michael's shoulder at the edge of frame as he watches Lori walk away from the Myers house. Minute 18, the camera moves along beside Michael and then is in the back seat of his car into minute 19 as he follows Tommy Doyle. The lingering camera in minute 23 after Michael is driven away in the station wagon. The camera rarely offers us Michael's perspective exactly. Instead, it is all approximate. We are with Michael, but we rarely are Michael. Michael's around someplace, and that's the point. Go back to minute one in the conversation with my sisters. For us as kids living near South Pasadena, this filming location, the Myers house, even an unrelated tree, the shape of which suggested a man standing behind it, these things scared us. Because Michael's around someplace. The movie ends with a series of shots, locations Michael has been. We'll get into this in minute 89, of course. As if the camera is trying to find Michael all over again. Loomis has shot him and he has gotten away. We hear him breathing. We no longer see him. But we can imagine, perhaps. Michael, at the edge of every one of those shots, just like he is at the edge of so many others through the film. Murray later has nice phrasing on this. Quote, his perspective is unpinned from his body and is as mobile and as invisible as the camera's gaze itself. End quote. Michael, the boogeyman, is everywhere, always. In my Groundhog Day Project blog, one of many days I watched and wrote about Halloween, I wrote this. Quote, the film offers Michael as something inhuman and increasingly supernatural. For me, on a personal level, he has something more down-to-earth shadow that could be on any suburban street, a nameless threat of violence that loomed in the dark, wherever I might find myself in the dark. End quote. Michael's around someplace. A different day, a different blog entry I wrote. Quote, the simple version is this, Halloween, I'm pretty sure, influenced my thoughts on evil more than going to church or private school ever did. I mean, religion messed with my head, sure, Made me fear for the end of the world, the inevitable ignition of the Cold War into World War III and the death of us all. Made me have an incessant problem with planning my life too far ahead. Made me distrust people in authority, but its idea of evil was maybe a bit too nebulous. Vacillating between everybody is capable of doing evil or the devil is sitting around making individuals do evil. Taken on its own, I mean, separate from the Thorn cult stuff from Curse. This movie offers up a Michael Myers who is just evil. I don't believe in evil as a thing unto itself, nor do I necessarily believe everyone is really capable of evil. We could all do bad things. But evil is a special label that is best reserved for, if we must use it outside of fiction, genocide, 
slavery, calculated, premeditated murder, but even those things come from underlying psychological and sociopolitical issues. Tides of mental faults and societal faults more than specific, singular, moral ones. Loomis certainly describes Michael as something supernatural, driven by something bigger than himself. Given Laurie's teacher's lecture on fate and destiny, Michael is simply, because we do not know yet his connection to Laurie from the sequel, a force of nature, a personification of destiny, of fate, of death, because what fate is there for any of us but eventually death? Which almost contradicts what I was just saying about evil. Or rather, I think that contradiction was there in my head when I was a kid, and that's one of the many reasons I eventually gave up on a religion that wasn't sticking. One of the many reasons that I'm a self-described bleeding-heart liberal, because I no more believe in fate or destiny than I do evil. They are exercises in language and philosophy more than anything real. What strikes me now, trying to think about Halloween without the context of all the slasher films that came after, is how simple and normal it is, and just how much more troubling that makes it. End quote. Michael's around someplace. Danny, well, in the script, the boyfriend grabs the sister and kisses her. In the novelization, Judy is more of a good girl who happens to be sexually active. When Danny comes over, she's been handing out candy to trick-or-treaters. In fact, Michael himself comes to the door with a group of kids, and when Judy challenges them, Oh yeah, Judy teased? What if I don't give you any treat? They stand there, silently puzzled. Finally, one of them, presumably Michael himself, says, We're gonna kill you. She's carving a jack-o'-lantern in the novelization. She was using the same butcher knife that Michael will use to kill her. In the movie, of course, Michael also dons the same mask that Danny has just been wearing. In the novelization, Danny's got a Frankenstein mask. Sister, laughing, take off that thing. From the script, the boyfriend rips off his mask. He's a handsome young man underneath. They kiss again, this time with more passion. The boyfriend begins to unbutton the sister's blouse. She responds to him. Boyfriend, let's go upstairs. Sister, okay. They get up from the couch. Second ten, he turns off the lamp in the living room. Uh, later in the film, Bob will also turn off the living room lamp before he and Linda head upstairs in the Wallace house. Second 13, Danny tickles Judy as she heads up the stairs. And Judy says, your hands are cold. The POV camera moves from the window. Uh, the script says it begins to restlessly pace back and forth, agitated, disturbed. Really, it just moves around to the front of the house by the jack-o'-lantern, looks up. And second 25, the light in the bedroom goes out and we get a musical stinger. From the script, the POV springs back from the window and stalks quickly down the side of the house. Yeah. The back door is wide open. Michael doesn't have to open it. The POV moves inside and second 50. As Michael enters the house, the piano kicks in. Now, as for the house and weird details, I think there are two blenders on the shelves in the kitchen. Somebody blends a lot. POV turns on the light, and a hand reaches for the drawer. It's Deborah Hill's hand. And the minute ends. That is all for Minute For It. Michael Myers Minute is a production of Lemming Drops Studio. You can find more content at lemmingdrops.com. You can stalk me on Twitter and Facebook at Myers Minute, or Instagram, Michael Myers Minute. Or join our Facebook listeners group, 45 Lampkin Lane. Don't forget to subscribe, and leave us a nice review if you like what you hear. Until next time. See you later. Bye.